When Kat was a kid, she wanted to be a physician, but eventually realized that her time would be better spent innovating in the healthcare industry as an entrepreneur. Her journey to becoming founder and CEO of Simply Vital Health is inspiring, and I was impressed by the technology her company and community are trying to build. I truly share her passion for unleashing the value of healthcare data. In this episode, we discuss the origins of SV Health and the challenges she faces bringing new technology into the slow-moving healthcare industry. Their featured platform, Health Nexus, is a globally HIPAA-compatible protocol and forked from the Ethereum blockchain. Kat is Health Unchained's first female guest, and I would certainly encourage other women entrepreneurs to get involved with building these new types of distributed business models in healthcare. Simply Vital is hiring. Check out the show notes for more details about the episode and a few cool links related to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Okay, and we have Catherine Kuzmeshkas, CEO of Simply Vital Health, a healthcare company based in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is kind of cool. So this, you'll be my first local guest, Catherine. Uh, welcome to the show. If you kind of want to introduce yourself a little bit and we can get started with the interview. Sure, sounds good. I am happy to be here. So I'm Kat, the co-founder and CEO of Simply Vital Health. And uh, I'll do a quick intro because we'll probably talk about a lot of the other stuff through the interview. But uh, I'm a former hospital administrator at Yale New Haven. And in that role, I was responsible for growing the market share of the medicine and surgery service lines. And it was really that point in time when I realized that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, uh, mainly just because I I guess I realized that hospitals move a little bit slower than my soul wanted to move. So that was <laughs> the biggest decision making point. Um, but then really the decision to jump was when I realized that there was a market opportunity and need for our first software. Um, so my background is definitely in healthcare, hospital administration, anything around data analytics and strategy. Um, I have a master's in public health and I'm a Teach for America Corps member, alumni. That's actually really interesting. I wanted to touch upon that experience at Teach for America. So what made you, you know, you started your career in education management. What, you know, how did you make that transition or what made you decide to transition into the healthcare industry? Yeah, so I, it, it was actually, I always decided that I wanted to be in healthcare. So when I was a kid, I wanted to be a physician. Um, I think there are a lot of kids that want to be physicians. Um, and I was doing clinical rotations in Ecuador my senior year of college in the rainforest. And when I was there doing clinical rotations, I realized that I was actually not that interested in the clinical rotation aspect and more interested in the administrative piece of healthcare. Um, so I was rotating through different hospitals and I was much more interested in figuring out how to make the systems work more efficiently. But then also I wanted to impact a larger denominator than one patient at a time. And so as a senior in college uh, is when I decided perhaps medical school is not the best option for me. 
uh, it's not the best time to quote unquote change your career path. <laughs> uh, and so I looked around to see what other options there were. And I had met Wendy Kopp a year before, who's the CEO or former CEO and founder of Teach for America. Both my mom and, and my grandmother were teachers and uh, my mom specifically worked in low income areas. And so I, I was very much drawn to education uh, in a similar way that I was drawn to health. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go do Teach for America. That sounds like a great step forward. And then um, was selected as a core member. It was more selected than Harvard Law that year. Uh, so it's kind of funny that I was like, oh, Teach for America, that sounds like a good idea. Wow. <laughs> um, and so I did that for three, I did Teach for America for two years, which is the core year amount. And then I stayed on for a third. I was on the Texas-Mexico border. And I had chosen the Texas-Mexico border specifically because I am and was very interested in how diabetes affects the Hispanic population. And as a seventh grade science teacher, I actually wanted to teach things such as nutrition and wellness through the science curriculum with the lens of diabetes. So it was very strategic in not only Teach for America, but also the decision to go to the Texas-Mexico border. So after three years, I uh, had been dating my now husband for a while, and he was recruited to teach in Hartford, Connecticut. And so I said, this is a great time to jump back into the healthcare path that I had always wanted to do. So I then went on to get my master's of public health, and the rest is history. That's an interesting story, an interesting pathway to get to this point. And I think I'm glad that you, you know, came to this point because I think what you guys are doing is very interesting. And I'd kind of like you to talk a little bit about Simply Vital Health in terms of, you know, how is it structured as a company and what products do you currently have? Yeah, definitely. So as a company, so Simply Vital Health Inc. is a Delaware corporation, um, which is rare in a blockchain space to actually be incorporated in the U.S., uh, but we decided right. to do that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because it. Yeah. So in healthcare, we, we decided to do that in healthcare because we didn't want our press releases or contracts that we sign with a hospital to say, you know, like Simply Vital Health, BVI, British Virgin Islands or some random country. It just um, for healthcare specifically, it delegitimizes what we're doing. And so we were very conscious about where we incorporated. So Delaware Corporation, um, and we are equity backed. So we have equity investment from a handful of fantastic investors. Uh, Yale University is one of them, Boost VC, which is led by Adam Draper, and they invest in uh, AR, VR, and blockchain. So augmented reality, virtual reality, and blockchain. Um, we have another. Uh, boutique VC arm led by Greg Castle from Silicon Valley. And then we have two healthcare investors. Uh, one of those groups was led by a uh, healthcare lawyer who's an expert in one of the areas that we focus on. And the other one is a company that focuses on financial analytics. So really surrounded ourselves with the healthcare side, as well as those that are looking at advanced technology. So equity backed, and then um, technically we have two products out right now. So one is a proprietary software platform that's called Connecting Care. And the other one is open source, which we call at this point a key pair system. Um, and the Connecting Care platform connects nurses from different clinical affiliations. So they have the same data on shared patients. And the whole purpose of that platform, and then we have analytics and buzzwords and all those fun things. <laughs> uh, but the purpose of that platform is to help uh, these providers to provide better care with the goal of decreasing healthcare cost. And it does use blockchain. It uses a what's what we call a receipt hash function. And basically what that means is that it creates an audit trail 
of the data that's in the platform. Um, so things like who's accessing the platform, um, what did they do in the platform? Why did they do that in the platform? Uh, and actually tracks uh, the interaction of the providers. So it proves that the coordination and communication actually occurred between providers. And the reason why that immutable audit trail is so important is because in healthcare, especially now, and if you look at where it's going, uh, providers are reimbursed based on uh, proving that they coordinated care, that they actually work together. So they can use our platform to be able to do that. So that's why we decided to use blockchain as a tech stack. Um, but that was actually a first entry point into testing the market for something much larger, which is creating a healthcare safe blockchain protocol. Uh, because we hypothesize that um, specifically for healthcare enterprise, we assume that they're not going to feel comfortable with adopting the Bitcoin or the Ethereum blockchain just for security and scalability reasons. So we focused more on a protocol that they feel safe to adopt. Um, the first step of that is a key pair system, which at its most basic core allows the governing of access to assets. So things like data, images, um, healthcare data. You can get pretty creative with the ways that you can use the key pair system. As I understand it from your white paper, Health Nexus, one of the products that you have is a fork out of Ethereum. So how did you make the decision to uh, fork out of Ethereum and create your own protocol? Yeah, that's a good question. So it really got down to us estimating or or um, hypothesizing that healthcare enterprise was going to want something a little bit different. And while there are a lot of protocols that we could look at, things like Hyperledger or you know EOS or whatever the new hot thing is out right now, um, <laughs> we decided on Ethereum specifically for a variety of reasons. One is healthcare really wants proof of traction. And what we mean by proof of traction is things that have been validated and proven. Um, healthcare is already a little bit skittish about blockchain technology. And so we wanted to find a protocol that's been proven and tested for, for a while. Um, and for the smart contracts that we have and have uh, smart contracts that we have and that we want to use, Ethereum was the best option specifically for proof of traction. Um, but even more than that, uh, you know, blockchain developers are kind of like unicorns. They're really hard to find. That's true. <laughs> but if you're going to need a blockchain developer, you might as well try to find the blockchain developers of which there's the largest pool. And right now that is Ethereum developers. So since we're creating a protocol, the infrastructure that others can develop applications on, it makes the most sense to, to use the protocol of which there are the most developers. Um, and then you can create your proofs of concepts and your apps on that. So those were two main reasons we decided to go that route. Um, but then the other thing, the fork, is so that we can create a public permissioned blockchain. And the permissioned piece is what's super important here. And the permissioned piece is that in order to be a validator of the protocol, or as some people call Node, uh, a validator, you have to have a HIPAA compliant server. And the reason that's important is because in healthcare, all of these companies that are creating applications for enterprise are going to have to have that conversation with the security and technology team at a hospital or a physician group, and they are going to have to answer, tell me about blockchain and where do those servers sit? Even though healthcare data is not going on the blockchain, uh, the IT and security team needs to wrap their head around what this protocol is before they will ever adopt it. And so being able to use something as universally and globally recognized as HIPAA compliance, uh, we wanted to fork Ethereum to, to create that permissioned pr 
protocol, public permission protocol. So these developers, are they using Solidity as well to mm -hmm. develop these applications or yeah. decentralized applications, dApps? Yep. Very interesting. So you mentioned a little bit about how you know, using your platform, it makes it much easier for people to look through the audit trail. And I understand that clinical trials, um, you know, that area of research is highly dependent on audit and audit trails and the ability to get the right information when they need it. And, you know, the integrity of that data is super important. So can you talk to me a little bit about what kind of interest you've seen uh, with different, you know, CROs, clinical research, research organizations? Yes, yes, this is huge. So we are talking to um, a handful of companies in this space, and I would say one stands out in my mind that I can't mention, um, but they're in, I know, <laughs> they're in Silicon Valley, and uh, they absolutely see the opportunity of them creating a dApp using this open source key pair system. Um, so again, our, our software is open source. You can find it on GitHub, so anyone can, can build off of it. But sometimes people come to us to ask us questions like this, like, we are a CRO company or a company that focuses on, on clinical trials, and we think there's an opportunity around blockchain. What do you think? And there is a massive opportunity. And a lot of the conversations that we talk about is efficiency um, because blockchain can, if you, if you put the process of clinical trials um, from the start to the mm -hmm. end, uh, hitting up against blockchain and tracking that process, it makes it much more transparent for all of the parties involved. And those that are familiar with clinical trials know that data access, just like all of healthcare, is one of the biggest barriers to efficient movement uh, through the process. So if you use a blockchain protocol in clinical trials, you then open up the opportunity to see the whole process. Um, so that is everything from the researchers to the patients to the auditors that have to prove that certain processes occurred. Uh, and those auditors are usually the, uh, some, but may not be, the federal government. Um, and so they want to make sure that that protocol that's being used is safely adoptable. So clinical trials have a huge opportunity for efficiency uh, because of that audit trail. How do you view the regulatory environment? Meaning, you know, you mentioned the FDA. Is it, are they becoming more transparent? Are they becoming more accepting of blockchain technology? Or is it still a struggle? Or is it still a challenge to really get them to understand how it can be valuable for the entire ecosystem and, you know, what we're doing or what people in the environment are trying to do is truly more valuable than the way it currently is. And th that being said, you know, it is a huge change. What we've yeah. built so far in the healthcare ecosystem, um, in the industry, it's there. It's very hard to, because it's, you have to change it from the, from the bottom, from the roots. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your experience? On, on oh, the yes. Front? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, who thought it was a good idea to innovate in healthcare and then innovate <laughs> with blockchain technology? Brilliant right. idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just kidding. I love healthcare and I love blockchain. So we're up to the challenge, but Me it's too. extremely <laughs> challenging. So, uh, you know, FDA, you know, probably not so much of a challenge because um, I don't think that they've really come up, up across it yet. And um, but even if they do, it's it's just a tech stack. So it's describing to them what the tech stack is that you chose. So, you know, I chose AWS cloud or I chose blockchain technology to run my clinical trial. So those conversations that we have with healthcare are usually pretty easy. 
um, or regular regulators, like people always ask, Oh, HIPAA, like, how can you work with HIPAA? It's actually mm-hmm. awesome. Like blockchain and HIPAA are perfect together. Absolutely. It makes really good sense <laughs> exactly. to be able to track where your data goes in an immutable way. Where we see the biggest challenges is any, um, any use or conversation about tokens. And the regulatory environment seems to be that they don't quite understand the importance and benefit of tokens. And I am not talking about exchanges. I am just talking about the movement and the use of a token uh, as part of the core functionality of the protocol. Um, it's The regulators have been pretty clear in stating, regulators, I'm talking all levels, SEC, FinCEN, whatever, the right. one that called them the commodities, um, they seem pretty clear in in understanding that blockchain technology is a good thing. But tokens, they don't seem to have wrapped their mind around the benefit of tokens and how tokens work in an ecosystem. So for example, in the key pair system, uh, if you are a developer creating a dApp, you hold a health token uh, to access that core functionality. Uh, and, and I was talking to one of our uh, or one of my colleagues today about Fortnite, which is like well, really popular right now. I am not a gamer, but they have tokens in their game and you can use these tokens to purchase things. And it just stays within that, with that environment. Um, and that's very important to that ecosystem because that's, that's the, the currency essentially of how you can work within that ecosystem. Right. So the same way that Fortnite you can use, but you have to have a token to buy things to actually move through the game. It's the same thing here with the key pair system. You have to you have to have a token to access that functionality to be able to buy, sell, and share keys to access digital assets. Um, so that token is really inherent to the actual protocol. Um, so you can use that token and then you can generate a key. I can share my key with you and then you can then access the data that I would like you to see. Right. And I think that the more people who contain or who can hold these keys and the more uh, tokens that you have distributed among more people, the network just becomes more stronger and re- robust, creating a more secure um, place for people to hold their data or, or you know, transact information. Exactly. And that point is actually lost on mm-hmm. the regulators is what we've seen. Um, it's, it's an interesting conversation that you can pick up from different uh, posts that are out there, different media or different conversations that people are having. And it seems to be that there's like this, this misunderstanding and, and, and misalignment of centralized and decentralized uh, and how like we as a company are, because our software is open source, anybody can use it. Like if we were to disappear tomorrow, that software is still out there. Right. Um, but we want those tokens to be out there so people can access the community and actually use it to, for that network. Um, and that's been a really difficult, from what we've seen and what we've read, it seems to be a really difficult thing for the regulators to understand. And so I think challenging is an understatement. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, they also see every token as a security. It's really difficult for them to, yes, there was a statement about Ether, um, but it's really difficult from what we've read and seen to recognize that there are many tokens out there that actually do have utility and labeling them, group labeling them as security is is not a good idea. Right. Uh, well, you you know, you have to give them some credit. They are trying to protect certain types of you know, investors or uh, there are a lot of bad actors actually that are yes. out in the in the ecosystem now and trying to take advantage of people who are maybe misinformed or 
you know, basically, you know, falling to some sort of fraud scheme. And, you know, how do you, so what has your experience been like, like navigating through that blockchain jungle? Oh, gosh, yes. And, and that's where we do believe, especially as a team, we, we welcome regulations. We welcome this good government of, of asking these companies, what are you doing? And really digging in to make sure that they're real legitimate companies. Like we as a company have a board of directors. We have equity investors. Like we have people that are, are, asking us like how you know what's going on uh your proprietary software what's coming in with revenue and that uh sounding board is really important to legitimize the company and so there there are so many bad actors out there um in the u.s globally everywhere um not only companies but also just the amount of trolls that are in social media um and that has been so hard to navigate and um, it's just this really interesting environment of um, where they f- entitlement is what right. I'll call it. It's, it's such an entitled ecosystem. And I, um, you it's know, interesting because, just- you know, you have mm-hmm. like some telegram groups and they have like 40,000 members, but nothing substantial comes out of their chat groups. And yes. it's just like, you know, raising money, ICO funds, whatever, yep. whatever. But there's no real substance to the product or there's no real value to what they're trying to build within their protocol or whatever Very kind of true. system. Very and, true. And, and it's sometimes it's becoming difficult to actually figure out who's the yep. bad actors. Yeah. And I, you know, and I've thought a lot about that. And and I really wish that people who were, you know, interested in, first of all, people who are contributing should be, well, I don't know. For me personally, I think that people who are contributing should be looking at the utility of the token, unless you're in a presale and that's different because that's been pretty clearly separated as a security. So it seems, um, but it is hard to identify the true teams. And I always wondered why people didn't just like, call up our investors and say like, Hey, are you real? Like, right. you know, why did you decide to in, you know, equity invest in simply about a health and no one, no one did that. And, or they would reach out and they would ask questions and we would, you know, connect them to our advisors and, and investors if they wanted to. But, you know, the same due diligence that people do for equity investment, I really think that people, especially presale folks should do just like dig in and really figure it out. Um, and it was so funny because people would ask if we were real, which I appreciated. Um, and I started to realize that, you know, one of my responses once was, you know, you can see across my social media profiles that I have a consistent presence. But then I realized that that still is hard to prove. Uh, I mean, anyone can create a social media profile. So I think it's something that's that the industry is grappling with for sure with these bad actors coming in, not only companies, but, you know, people in in the community as well so it's it's an interesting uh new thing to navigate i would for say for sure and as, i think as you know goes. you can also imagine potentially seeing new blockchain protocols trying to develop like proof of identity yes. systems where you can you know link in your identity to whatever you're working on and that'll be your proof i i think that would be fantastic uh proof of identity and there's some cool ways you could do that like like through a personal social network. So let's say that someone wanted to prove, well, I guess it's only two of us right here, but you could even like, I could verify that you are you and you could verify that I am sure. me. And uh, in, in a group of friends, you could do the same thing. Um, so yeah, I think that would be fantastic. Proof of so, identity. So question for you, how have you been able to maintain your integrity throughout this whole process while you see other people raising money with no real <laughs> products or users? 
So, you know, my co-founder and I talk about that all the time. I really think it comes down to like the core principles that we had when we were children. Hmm. Like really, really focusing on the fact that and really, really believing and being hopeful in the fact that that the cream of the crop and the good will rise to the top when things get really, really tough. Uh, because things will, it's just like the, it's just like the start of the internet. Things are going to get tough. Um, people keep talking about a crypto winter. We're preparing for an economic winter. A lot of people are saying 2019. Um, there's meant, there will be some sort of, um, everyone's talking about it, just some sort of disruption. Sure. Um, and we, we just really hold on to karma <laughs> and just saying like all of the good decisions that we're making will pay out in the end somehow it'll somehow we as a company it you know people will start it'll start to just kind of level out and that's really what kind of keeps us going and helps us maintain our integrity is kind of like the good sportsmanship that your parents and your caregivers told you about when you were kids it's just like you know what pick yourself back up and high five the other player and say let's keep going um because i think that we're just really looking more for the long term and think that it'll really kind of shake out in the end. Yeah, I certainly think that'll, you know, be the case. You know, you have the bad actors, as we were talking about, just basically disappear almost, you know, overnight, it'll feel like. And mm-hmm. then, the, you know, companies who have real substance to them will become, uh, you know, within our society, just ubiquitous, potentially. Yes. Yep. Uh, changing the topic a little bit. So based on my own experience and speaking with various companies and people, the blockchain space, like many new technologies that are poorly understood, predominantly uh, attracts men. What has mm. your experience been like as a woman CEO? And do you think there have been any disadvantages or advantages being a woman in this field? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And first, I'm glad that everybody's having these conversations, with it, which I think is really great. And one thing that I've been really consistent on is while there is much opportunity for for women in the field, but also uh, minorities in the field. Uh, I will say that we're farthest we've ever been on any new technology. Uh, If you look at the numerator to denominator or to the ratios, which is great. There are more women in blockchain than there were in the internet, in the internet age. Um, So I think we're moving in the right direction, for for example. Um, But there's more that can be done. Um, There's more opportunity. But I will say that the conversations have been very warm and inviting in the most part. And I personally have made sure that I identify those in the field that are open to, you know, broadening the diversity and focusing on those. Of course, you hear about the bad stories and the crypto bros and all of those things, especially at conferences. And mm-hmm. so there's going to be a little bit of that anywhere that you go. But I would say overall, it's, it's actually been promising. Um, it hasn't been easy. I'll be really honest with you. I actually, if you, if you look at, um, if you just take token sales, for example, token pre-sales, for example, and you break it down by gender, um, aside from the two that did really, really well, which are both uh, Tezos and Bancor, um, caveat, Tim Draper invested in them. And so often when Tim Draper goes in, everybody goes in. If you look at, so excluding those, anomalies, which you know, I love. Bank- I don't know much about Tezos, but I love Bancor. Um, and I think that they have a great product and a great vision. Um, but uh, excluding those anomalies, if they, you then break down the rest of them. 
most of the women CEO token sales did not raise anything near most of the other male com- blockchain mm. companies. And that's actually quite standard in equity investment. Um, I'm not saying, and I'm talking pre-sale only. I'm not talking about TGE because it's very important to distinguish those in this regulatory uncertainty. TGE? Uh, token generation event. Okay. When the token's actually created. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, yes. Um, in in those situations, it's just that that is actually quite parallel to equity investment. Uh, women founders only get around 2% of all the investments that go out to companies. Um, And in fact, a team that has any amount of women women leadership, one or more than one, uh, compared to a team of all men, uh, the team of all men is four times as likely to receive equity investment than the team that has any number of women on them. And so those types of disparities do seem to still exist. Um, yes, there are conversations happening, um, but there is still this this glaring difference in so, this space. So what advice would you give women that might be interested in getting into this new field, trying to architect trust, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so I think trust is important, definitely in blockchain in general, but I think also just um, it is, you know, having said all of that, yes, there are disparities that exist and yes, there are differences that exist, but it is still a really great time to get into tech because uh, that that ratio is narrowing every day. Uh, and so there is opportunity. Um, there are a lot of women founders and women co-founders that are doing excellent things in this space. And um, I think women are also really good at creating networks. And so there are an innumerable amount of women networks that exist where um, any sort of entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit can get involved. Um, so it is a really great time to be a woman in technology. Uh, and so I think that's really helpful. So again, challenging, yes, for sure. Um, me too moments, hashtag definitely had some of those. Um, but you know, it's, I think the fact that the, that ratio is narrowing should not be overlooked. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. I think that it's going to be an interesting few decades ahead. And I think that the, those disparities will basically, I think, close. Yeah, um, definitely. So changing topics again, I want to talk a little bit more about the token and are you considering proposing airdrops for uh, your token uh, in order to have you know, a large amount of people, a large amount of wallets distributed amongst uh, a bigger network? Yeah, so I would say that's something that is in consideration. I know that there are a lot of companies that are doing airdrops and, and we are actively exploring it. Um, so it's, it's definitely an option, definitely an opportunity that we are exploring. So. Okay. Yeah. For me, I feel like airdrops might become like the new type of ICO. So you have lots of disadvantaged people who might not be able to afford, um, you know, healthcare or, you know, even yeah. homeless people. And these types of people might benefit most from airdrops because mm-hmm. they're not only helping the network, but they're also getting something out of it. So they're participating mm-hmm. in something and getting value from it. And they, you know, they're not really doing much. It's just they're living. And mm-hmm. as long as they're transacting on the network, you know, it'll build value. It's an interesting concept. And I think that it's going to become more popular over time. Definitely. Welcome to Health Unchained News Corner. Simply Vital Health, the Boston-based blockchain healthcare company, 
company featured in this episode, has joined with the cool kids to bring Simply Vital's open source key pair system to identify the highest healthcare impact opportunity in the Philippines. The cool kids are a collective of consultants and entrepreneurs committed to improving lives by developing tools for responsible stewardship of today's emerging technologies. Among these tools is Health Nexus, an open source blockchain protocol that is safely adoptable by healthcare globally. The cool kids will help Simply Vital Health navigate local rules and regulations and locate a suitable and sustainable pilot project to demonstrate the many uses for their key pair system. Simply Vital Health has partnerships with 16 different developers across the globe who are already developing dApps or decentralized apps for Health Nexus. Over the next few weeks, Simply Vital Health and the Cool Kids will narrow the scope of focus in order to identify the most impactful opportunities in the Philippines. Together, they will develop a sustainable pilot project to demonstrate the versatility and security of Health Nexus and their key pair system. This is a great example of a company really reaching out across the globe and identifying communities that really would benefit greatly from this type of technology. As always, you could find the link to this article in the show notes. And now, back with Kat from Simply Vital Health. Moving on, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit more about the products. I'm kind of interested in how Health Nexus really works and like what's your traction been so far? Yeah, definitely. So it starts first with the open source key pair system, um, which right now is an ERC-20 token. And we have, um, so at this point, we've had uh, 37 companies that have expressed interest or 37 people that have expressed interest in building. And we have 21 of those that are actively building some sort of decentralized application on the key pair system. And uh, that's pretty good traction, given that the open source uh, GitHub was released on November 13th. So not even a year, and we've had that many people come through expressing interest. And again, the key pair system allows anyone to buy, sell, and share digital assets. One of the cool things about the key pair system is that it's actually vertically agnostic uh, or vertical agnostic. Uh, We actually have someone who's using the key pair system for music. So he's releasing his, his newest song on the key pair system and he'll be able to share it for free or he can actually sell it using the token. Um, and he's interested in doing this because I mean, music is, is a pretty common example of, of a really important industry where the intermediary causes a lot of uh, not issues, but it just like, it's just better to go direct to the musician and it's, it helps the musician with their profits, which are already squeezed and narrow anyway. And so he was really interested in being able to pioneer that with the key pair system. And depending on how that goes, he would actually release his whole album with the so, key pair system. So if I were to, for example, release my podcast episodes using this key pair system, how would I do that? Step one. Ah, yeah, good question. Uh, so there are two ways you can go. So you can go full dev route, which either you or someone you know could take the GitHub as it is and, and create an app with a cool front-end interface that makes it easy for people to um, accept that key to either have access to it online so they don't actually download it, which means you can just share it, mm-hmm. or they can actually purchase it and download it. Um, and so that functionality is actually already in uh, the code that exists on GitHub. Um, and really, it's just attaching a front end to that back end code with the blockchain. So when you say purchase, um, do they purchase it with a certain type of token or? Yes, yes, they do. So so let's say that you share 
let's say that you're just sharing your podcast. So there's no cost to it. Mm -hmm. If if you're just sharing it, so let's say you're sharing it with me, I don't need a token. I can consume that podcast through through the internet, listen to it, and then you know come back and listen to it. Um, But it's not mine. It's not in my possession. As an example, mm-hmm. but let's say that I want to buy that, that I would need a health token that would that would actually transact the the key. So, um, in in exchange of my token to you, I would then get a key that would allow me to download the podcast, and then I would have it. So that's how there's a buying option or a selling option with the token in the key pair system. So let's take that idea and now think about how a pharmaceutical company would like to maybe either sell its drugs or maybe buy information from patients, how would that work? I love the buying of the information because this is huge. So the (laughs) um, we've released a couple of blog posts on this already, but the next proprietary (coughs) software that we're building is actually a marketplace around healthcare data. So little known fact, everybody got all up in arms about Facebook and Facebook using their social data, but little did you know that there is a multi-billion dollar industry that profits off of your data, your healthcare data. Yeah, it's massive. And it's all de-identified, so we don't want to scare anybody. But this is actually allowed under HIPAA, which is totally fine. The healthcare data is extremely important for new drug discoveries, for, for advancements in healthcare. It's very important, but you're starting to hear a lot of conversation about people realizing the value of their healthcare data. Uh, and um, I'll get there in a second. Oh, this is so exciting. There's so much to talk you're about. Good. No, absolutely. <laughs> this is great. Uh, so, so two main examples uh, one is a woman called Henrietta Lacks. And Henrietta Lacks in the 50s was diagnosed with cancer, um, and or 40s or 50s. And she died in 1951, but they had sourced her cells without her permission. And those cells continued to live on and have contributed massively to both the biotech biopharm and healthcare patent space. I think I read it was either 17,000 or 170,000 patents have been filed on Henrietta Lacks cells and DNA alone. So this is a massive industry for oncology. Yep, it's huge. And how much did Henrietta Lacks get for that? Nothing. Nada. <laughs> Nada. Not one. And so it's a really interesting conversation here. And, you know, we could go on to the side of law of who actually owns data. Uh, no one can answer that question clearly, except for the state of New Hampshire, which is the only state that has actually put into law that the patient owns their data. Hmm, interesting. So yeah. is this just in terms of all the data that's generated by the human or is it just the health data? Because you can have like, you know, if I post something online um, or if I have a some sort of content that I create, is that still my data or is it is, is that covered under under the law or important distinction. So we're talking here about protected health information. So this is things like your information that goes in through an electronic medical record. Uh, If you wear a Fitbit, um, that information, I actually don't know who has that information, probably Fitbit, the company Fitbit. (laughs) Um, But for your electronic health record information, which is generated by a physician visit, a surgery, a hospital visit, anything sort of interaction with the healthcare, um, it is not clear who owns that data. So there's an actual like, you know, a lot of friction going yeah. on now in healthcare, like who actually owns that data except for New Hampshire. Um, but there's another way to look at it. So, so yes, you know, that exists. There's the law, there's the legal aspect of it, which is there's actually a lawyer who's taken on the Henrietta Lacks case specifically for the um, estate 
of in the family of Henrietta Lacks, which is quite awesome. Um, but then there's the other side, which is like your data exists and there are opportunities for you to to capitalize on that uh, upcoming, like with our marketplace. And the reason why that's important is because there is a massive market for data. Um, and the reason I know that is because we at Yale, just like any other hospital, spent a lot of money buying healthcare data because that is how I grew the market share of the hospital. Hmm. So we would take de-identified data and I would look at it. And let's say that I wanted to look at GI surgeries and I wanted to see how our market share looked in the state of Connecticut for uh, gastrointestinal surgeries. Uh, I would consume data, a lot of data, and I would analyze it and I would put it into maps and I would say, this is our opportunity in the state of Connecticut. So that data came from essentially three companies. Um, that data came from HMS specifically. Two other companies are IMS and LexisNexis. Um, one of those companies actually brings in $3 billion of revenue by selling de-identified data. That was a B, billion. That was a lot. Wow. <laughs> and so companies like Yale New Haven or any hospital buys that data to consume it for various business reasons. Um, Pfizer spends $12 million a year buying de-identified healthcare data. So there's a market out there. Um, but right now, that that market really sits between health insurance companies and those three companies at the top. With a marketplace, you can actually, in blockchain, you can actually bring that all the way down to the patient. Um, and so with the marketplace, we're actually, marketplace plus key pair system, we're actually working on creating ways for um, patients to benefit from this, pharmaceutical companies to benefit from this. So getting back to your question, let's walk through the example of a pharmaceutical company. So right now, uh, so let's take oncology, for example. Uh, this is a true statistic. One oncology record de-identified goes for $1,500. Hmm. If you're an oncology patient, um, you have a record worth $1,500 uh, of your oncology information. That's the average price? Average price, yep. And that's, that's legally HIPAA-compliant selling of healthcare data. Um, so let's say that a pharmaceutical company is interested in a rare on oncologic disease or a rare cancer disease data set. Um, and let's say that I am a uh, academic medical center, which basically means like a Yale or a Harvard or, or uh, Johns Hopkins hospital, and you are an oncology patient. All three of us stakeholders could come together and say, let's take Johns Hopkins, for example, and say, um, we would like to uh, figure out how to, to share this data or sell this data with a pharmaceutical company. Uh, and you as a patient could say, yes, I definitely want to be a part of that. Um, I think I have really good data and I'd like to be compensated for that. So there you can actually create a HIPAA compliant and legal agreement to be able to share and move and access that data. Um, and then the key pair system is really important using blockchain because you want to be able to track where that data goes and who actually uses it. Not only for HIPAA compliance, because um, it's very important that protected health information is only used for what it's supposed to be used for. So just pharmaceutical research for whatever they want to use it for. Um, but then also the audit trail so that you as a patient at some point could actually see who's accessed your data. Uh, and so it's a really interesting ecosystem that you can create. Um, now, it's important to state that this does not go against HIPAA compliance uh, or any what we call data use agreements or business associate agreements. All of this should be done in a legally compliant way and can actually be done in a legally compliant way. That's very interesting. I wonder about the intermediaries who now won't be necessarily uh, part of the equation. Are they fighting back or are they trying to develop new business models for themselves maybe that might incorporate blockchain? Well, what's interesting is is there is actually an article 
gosh, it was probably three years ago that was written in the Harvard Business Review. And it actually, the title was uh, Digital Health Companies Need to Stop Selling Data as Their Business Model or something like that. Basically, like all of you companies that are, are essentially betting on your business model of consuming data for free and then selling it out need to be really careful. And I think he talked about something else. I think he talked about like the value of that is going to decrease or something. But in fact, the direction that the article could have gone is the opportunity to sell that data will be disintermediated, uh, which is exactly what you just asked about. So we haven't seen anyone fighting back yet. We've actually seen more the other side, which is like this rallying, not only of patients, but also healthcare providers that realize that this is a new opportunity. Another example we got really excited about is Ontario. So just like two or three days ago, Ontario, uh, there was a news release um, that Ontario, which is a um, has a public healthcare system, has decided to release their healthcare information, de-identified, to researchers and analysts to try to see what they can come up with this data. Um, and so what we talk about often with the marketplace is not, not just this opportunity for, say, patients to be able to track where the data goes and benefit from it, but you can actually create a brand new gig economy around healthcare data or yes. general data. And you can actually put it out there. Like, I tell you what, as a graduate student, I would, like, I was already analyzing a ton of data. I would have analyzed more data and get paid for it. And so there's like this whole new opportunity, just the way people created a gig economies exactly. around Airbnb and cars, you can actually create a brand new gig economy around data. And that's really what we're focusing on with the marketplace. Absolutely. You can, you know, just imagine there's tons of, you know, fitness trainers who are, you know, holding classes for people and each one of those people might want to share their data and then you can have different communities building that are all kind of watching their progress as they go seeing what diets what workouts work best for what type of yes. genomes that they have and then you can have real truly personalized medicine uh, come into play and that's Absolutely. the that's the goal that's the dream i think for a lot of these uh, healthcare leaders so it's really cool yeah and it's uh, it's so cool because like every aspect of that you know data analytics or fitness role, you know, because you can have people that that produce the data, then you have people that analyze the data, but then you're going to have to have quality control. So you've sure. got all of the people involved. It's super exciting. Yeah, it should be interesting to see how that unfolds and how uh, governance models will be developed around those kinds of... Yes, Yeah. absolutely. I'm actually curious about like, what's the sentiment around, you know, your team and your advisors, um, specifically about the block, the adoption of blockchain technology? Do you mean in terms of healthcare or, or in Actually, terms yes, of... specifically in healthcare first, but then I'd also want you to answer in, in general as well. Yeah. I mean, so I'm going to see if I'm answering this correctly, but I mean, we're really hopeful about blockchain technology in healthcare, but also in other verticals with the caveat that people need to be building software that actually serves a need. Mm -hmm. uh, and because if you, if you are serving a need, and it doesn't matter really what tech stack you're using because that fulfills an actual need that exists in whatever market you're in. So, for example, um, a lot of people talk about um, uh, it's going to ruffle some feathers, but <laughs> a lot of people talk about uh, there are certain blockchain companies out there in healthcare that are trying to help the patient um, own their data, like individually, the patient like can own and manage their data. And that is a great idea in theory and on paper. But any of us that have actually worked in an academic medical center or with the Medicaid population 
Or for example, with, with my students who on the Texas-Mexico border did not have roofs on their houses, may not have had electricity or running water. The last thing that those people are interested in is actually managing their health care. They have a lot of other competing priorities instead of managing their own health care. And so while that's a great idea in theory, um, what we see in that area with blockchain and healthcare is actually what you've seen with things like the Fitbit and the personal trackers, where it's actually just going to be this, the healthy people or relatively healthy people that are just going to continue to get healthy and continue to focus on their own health. Um, it's actually not going to address the biggest need and the biggest uh, opportunity in healthcare and cost savings. So, you know, while we see a lot of promise in blockchain, um, we see some folks that may be iterating in the space that don't have practical knowledge and practical experience in healthcare specifically, and, and they run up against some walls, which is fine. That's the whole point of innovation is like you just kind of figure it out as you go. Um, but it's kind of hard to see that in the space when, you know, there's a lot of opportunity, but people who didn't really vet the market, like they didn't like people who just like, like created a product without doing standard startup stuff, like actually go out and talk to your potential customers and figure out if they're actually going to buy it. Right. Like, so our company and our products are actually built on at least two years of market research um, where I actually went out and had conversations between with about 150 to 200 uh, physicians, advisors, nurses, people in the clinical space, like, would you actually buy this? And that research is really important. So, so blockchain technology has a lot of promise and opportunity. If people are actually approaching this the same way you would approach any other startup, like lean startup, lean methodology, go out and talk to your customers and test your customers and see if they actually want to buy this. So that's where we really see the opportunity and kind of like that separation that we talked about before uh, is people who have been really thoughtful in their approach of, of using blockchain as a, as a tool. True entrepreneur. I like the, the terms that you threw there. You're right, though. I think that it's important to do your market research and take time to understand what the people really need before you start making something. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to the question of how important is community? Within, mm. Yeah. Yeah, this is huge. So, you know, I think it kind of depends on how people have structured their blockchain technology. Um, so for us, community is really important. So we talked a lot about the key pair system, but we didn't talk a lot about like the protocol of, of like the key pair system is the foundation to the much larger protocol. Um, and in that protocol, community is essential because what we're creating is infrastructure and infrastructure must have builders and it's open source. So those, you know, it's not a, if you build it, they will come. Uh, the community has to be culture. Like you have to, you have to help Foster grow that. the community. Absolutely. Foster it, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, community is really, really important. And I think that's an important statement because talking about challenges So and Telegram. So we made the decision to change our Telegram channel to an announcement-only channel. And I tell you what, we got so much backlash for it. But the reason we did that is because it wasn't the community that was going to – that was like – really dedicated and interested in the protocol like that they had washed you know they had gotten washed away and and you know kind of fell out of the meaningful conversation and so we wanted to make sure that we created and, and fostered a really good community and so we felt like you know just kind of like stepping away from telegram for a while which cesspool maybe not be the right word <laughs> maybe it is the right word not really sure <laughs> um, but it just kind of become this just like really toxic place from what we've seen um, and we really wanted to create a separate community so um I think blockchain, and then you talk about token economics and networks, community is really, really important. So what platform are you um, fostering that community? So not Telegram, Great is it Twitter? Question. Or what's your, yeah. So uh, we're actually looking, um, we're doing a rollout plan of Gitter. Gitter. 
Yes. I actually don't know what Gitter is. I know. It's is, excellent. Tell me uh, more. <laughs> so Gitter is a, uh, it's actually a developer community chat network. Uh, it's actually used by folks like Ethereum. And um, it's just a place to go where if you have questions or if you want to build a community of, of devs, um, then you can create it on this chat network. Um, we've decided at this point to potentially not go back to Telegram. We're probably going to be the only company that doesn't. Um, but I've heard a lot of people are just really uh, upset with the direction that Telegram has taken and just the bad actors in the communities and, and those who aggregate around Telegram. So we've decided to completely move off of that platform and, and try something else, Gitter. So we're actually working with our social media team to um, kind of organically grow that community and we'll roll it out over the next couple of months. Um, but yeah, that's what we decided. Is Gitter looking into decentralizing their infrastructure? I don't know. Uh, you know how like Telegram just did a <laughs> right. crazy token sale? That I don't know. Nuts. That would be kind of interesting. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people came to Telegram, I guess, because of, I don't know. I don't really know, like the confidentiality of it or. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I mean, I guess people claim that it's more secure and then you can create groups that have good administrative uh, settings. I think those are kind of the features that people were latching onto. But yeah, again, like uh, there's so many platforms and if you find something better, that's that's great, especially for yeah. your developers. I was going to say the other reason we chose Gitter is because, you know, yes, if you go to the website, it says where developers can we, you know, where developers communicate or have their community. Um, and our community definitely needs to be more than developers. Um, and when I talk to norm normal people, non-blockchain and I tell them about Telegram, it's like I'm speaking a foreign language. Like they have no idea what this social network is. And perhaps Gitter is that way as well. Um, but we feel like Gitter is a safer place to go. So if there are patients that are interested in understanding how they can use the Health Nexus protocol, we would prefer them to go to a welcoming environment in, a, in, a, in an right. application that they feel comfortable with. So that's why we chose that one. Very cool. Learning something every day. <laughs> My next question if it's not too personal, what would you consider to be your biggest mistake? Mm. Oh, man. Biggest mistake. Man, you're not going to like my answer. <laughs> because That's I actually it. don't... It's actually a Tim Ferriss answer. So, okay. <laughs> Do you know who Tim Ferriss is? Yeah, podcast. Okay. Yeah. So, I, so my, I actually embrace mistakes and embrace failure because I think that they're really, really important parts of the journey. And so I would actually say that there's not a mistake or a decision or a path or a failure that I uh, regret or wish didn't happen. And um, the reason why, so I would say, you know, one thing that I think about often is uh, you know, I'm not a young 20 something that decided to create a company. And sometimes I see the negative of that because it's a lot, I mean, it's a lot harder every day as you get older to start a company because you have a lot more assets that you have to take care of a house, a family. I don't have kids yet, but you know, kids make it a lot more difficult and, you know, just a lot of competing priorities. So I often wonder, would it be easier to start a company if I was younger? Um, a mistake that I made is not realizing earlier that the entrepreneurial path was actually the right one for me. Um, but then I think of it on the other side and I realize that, that my pathway is exactly what needed to happen. Um, and I actually am 
where I am now and the company is where it is now because of that experience and because of how long it took us to, took me to get here. Um, everything from Teach for America, where I was, I had dashboards on my students in red, yellow, and green, where I knew down to the specific objective and specific student where their weaknesses and strengths were. And I remember looking at that dashboard in class one day and I said, wouldn't it be great if physicians had something like this on their patients? And at that point, dashboards actually weren't that big, of, that big in healthcare. And then I actually used that knowledge um, when I was working at a community health center and created a dashboard for them and then used that knowledge of, of working with a tech team with external customers to create different softwares and different different platforms and different you know tables. And so every single piece of my journey has been really important to get us to the point of where we are as a company. And so I would actually say that um, every mistake or every failure was supposed to happen uh, and kind of got me to this point. So, okay. It sounds like the, my summary of that would be, um, potentially starting earlier would have been better, but yeah, obviously then it wouldn't have led to this position you're in now. So you, know, you never exactly. know. So yeah. it's good. It's good. Another question. Have you changed your mind on anything recently and what made you change it? I don't know if the recently is an important factor to focus on, but I actually wouldn't say it's recent, but so I had the realization that access to healthcare data and sharing healthcare data is actually a business issue, not a technology issue, was a really big realization uh, and something I did not expect. And that was really, it's a really, really important factor to understand if you're trying to innovate in healthcare and you're, you're focusing on healthcare data access. Because to us in our mind, being consumers and having very, just where we are in our world with technology and the internet, um, it doesn't make sense to us that healthcare data isn't as accessible as all of the other data out there. Um, and if you haven't had the experience of being in the clinical setting in conversations about how much intellectual property and business intelligence sits within the data that you have in your silos, it is really difficult to comprehend why that data doesn't move freely. And you really start to realize that there are so many business incentives around movement of healthcare data. And that was really important. I actually think there are a lot of healthcare innovators that haven't quite come to that realization. Coming to that realization was not only my personal experience with healthcare data and analyzing healthcare data for a hospital and realizing that small community hospital in Connecticut did not want to share their data with Yale. Like in my mind, why wouldn't you? Like it benefits everybody, right. like obviously, but it actually doesn't happen that way. Big, big institutions usually take that data, consume it and don't produce anything out. Uh, and so there's no benefit to the smaller community hospital or physician or, or smaller anything. And I also started to realize this once I did a very, very deep dive deep like thesis level dive into health information exchanges, which is in the US, uh, something that the federal government put $564 million towards, and almost every single statewide health information exchange has failed. And the reason why is if you actually read, and I read like, like you talk about the articles that existed, I read articles on both sides, I read federal government side that had to had to produce uh, as positive results as they can to try to keep the federal funding coming to people who were actually in the system that were much more honest about the issues with health information exchanges. And at that time, it was because there was an, a lack of two things. One is trust and the other is a business incentive to actually keep that system going. And so I would say that that's probably the biggest 
change that I had in my understanding of healthcare was that data access is really business. It's not technology. Sounds like those two problems could potentially be resolved with a blockchain solution, trust <laughs> yes. and incentives. So that's that's really great. And I'm you know really excited to see where you guys go with Simply Vital Health and um, you know what you're building. I think it's really cool. And it's cool that we're neighbors too. So you're just yes. in Watertown. I'm in Cambridge. Yep. That's awesome. Um, are there any final kind of words you want to leave the audience with or something uh, you know else you wanted to discuss? No, I just welcome anyone that's interested, um, especially devs. You know, you can go to our GitHub, uh, which you can access on our blog. There's a whole page on how you can use the open source key pair system and just really innovate. Just like it's a really awesome opportunity in healthcare. Uh, you can dizzy yourself with all of the opportunities and things that we could fix just here in the United States. Um, but I also encourage people to, which is kind of ironic because I love, you know, there's so much we can fix here in the U.S. But, you know, blockchain technology has a lot of promise in developing countries, too, where, where you don't have entrenched electronic medical record systems that you have to work around or work with. Um, and just really open your eyes to opportunities by testing the market, going out and talk to people. Um, but there is a solution right now that you can use to try to iterate, innovate in healthcare. So we just offer that up to everybody. Kat, thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. I think this has been so much fun. And um, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Appreciate it so much. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.